Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We will cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Julie Gunderson, at Julie underscore Gund on Twitter. Welcome. Today we are talking with Jason Yee at Gremlin, and we're going to talk about all things chaos engineering, making sure your systems are reliable, and also being prepared for disaster. So Jason, to get us started, we've been having a lot of conversations, especially in the community and with our roles, about this new coronavirus that's going around. And there's quite a lot uh, that we can draw conclusions from for how we prepare for something like this to also making sure that our systems are reliable. But what are your thoughts with everything that's going on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this whole coronavirus, COVID-19, it's a really interesting thing for me. Um, as you mentioned, within what we do, the whole developer relations world, we, we often travel a lot. We go to conferences. There's definitely been a huge impact. Aside from people wondering if travel is safe, uh, we've seen conferences that have canceled. Uh, just this morning, KubeCon, which was supposed to be held in Amsterdam at the end of March, uh, March 30th through April 3rd, I believe, or April 2nd, they decided to postpone. So KubeCon will be for Europe will be happening sometime slated for July or August, which hopefully gives enough time for whatever this virus is to die down or, or find a vaccine or a cure. So there's definitely impacts there. So aside from impacting what we do as a job, I think it, it brings up, as you mentioned, you know, there's there are other implications of how do you operate as a company when you're impacted by outside forces such as viruses and outbreaks, and what does that mean for for things like disaster recovery or resiliency, not only for your systems but for your, your people systems. Yeah, and, and one of the things with the conference cancellations that I find interesting is that uh, while the conferences, some of them are completely canceling, we're seeing a lot of conferences give people an online option, which it will be, um, it'll be very interesting to see what the future looks like after people get used to being able to work in a remote environment or attend some of these events um, in a virtual way. I think it may change a little bit about how we do business. When we talk about disaster recovery, I know uh, of a couple of companies that are looking to order laptops for their folks uh, to help them be remote in case they need to. And uh, right now, uh, it, because of where things are manufactured, it's hard to get your hands on those. So how do we translate that into future planning? What are your thoughts? That's a great question. One of the things when it comes to future planning is, is how do you imagine failure to look like? I've been thinking about this and, and I've been sort of writing about it as well, just like taking notes and, and trying to gather my ideas. But there's this phrase called uh, failure of imagination. Failure of imagination means that we often fail to think about ways that things could break. And in hindsight, they look very obvious. And so I think one of the interesting things that comes about because of things like coronavirus is the notion of what happens to my processes when people can't be in the same room together, when people are remote? What happens to my processes when 
laptops can't be ordered because they're all coming from China and they, they won't be uh, able to be exported or imported. And so I, I think that that brings about an interesting thing of how do you think about failure and how do you imagine failure states to be? Because that's really crucial to testing, right? Without imagining what failure might look like, you have no idea what to test. And so I'm, I'm curious on, you know, from your point of view, PagerDuty obviously being a great service to let people know when things fail. How do you test for failure in PagerDuty? What are the things that you're looking at and commonly like what, what, what are the failures that you imagine? Well, one of the things that we do at PagerDuty is, is we do Failure Fridays, which is our version of chaos engineering. And it's something that occurs on Fridays, which a lot of people have strong opinions about. They get nervous over the fact that, that we choose to do this on a Friday. But at the end of the day, you should be prepared for a failure to occur any day of the week. You should also be prepared to understand when you're going into a chaos engineering experiment, what your expected outcomes are. And I think when you talk about imagining what that failure looks like, I, I don't think anybody imagined uh, the situation that's occurring now with the virus, but it, it could change how we address chaos engineering in the future. At Gremlin, I participated in one of your workshops where it was more of a, a an experiment, a thought experiment. We had some exercises on the, the trial version that we were able to do. Can we translate those types of learnings into less technical learnings and more learnings for something like this that's going on? What are your thoughts? Absolutely. We actually, so at Gremlin, we run a conference called Chaos Conf. Hopefully, we will be one of the conferences that's still running. But given the current situation, I think everything is up in the air. Nobody knows the future. But at Chaos Conf last year, Dave Renson, who's with Google, talked about chaos engineering with people. And he talked about running various experiments that they do at Google, such as putting someone on a surprise PTO. Essentially, someone would be told that, hey, don't show up for work today, you have a vacation day. And then the team would see how they operate without that person to see if they were a single point of failure, if they were a critical blocker, and to test whether the knowledge that that person had was distributed, right? Similar to any distributed system, having knowledge, having data in multiple places is useful for resiliency. They would use that to test, you know, is this person the, the single point of failure? Are they the only person that knows how to do a certain thing? And you really quickly uncover that when you send people off on vacation that's unplanned. Uh, he talked about a few other things, but yeah, really testing what you know, what you have documented. That was actually one of the other things was having uh, new team members or people from other teams actually run through your documentation to see if your documentation works. So that, those were fun, some fun ways that you could essentially chaos engineer with people that he mentioned. And I'm sure, you know, as we think of failing to imagine, if we actually spend time and imagine what, what our processes would look like by sort of messing with the people in it, uh, we could probably come up with some more interesting ones as well. Well, and I think that brings up an important part of chaos engineering, right? It's about practicing. And so that, that person on vacation, just like you said, that can lead to understanding of the single point of failure. And I think one of the things that, that uh, is really important and that can come out of it is, is practicing for that failure, practicing for that disaster, because the more you practice, the more comfortable you are if something happens, right? Absolutely. 
what you're doing with chaos engineering is really building up those skills. And so I love that you use that word practicing because that's exactly what it is, is if you had a firefighter and all they did was respond to real incidents and never practice their skills and never get that training that they needed, then they would be less effective in the actual emergency. Similar with, with you know, really any emergency responder or any critical sort of role or occupation. And so if we think about that, I love that idea of practicing because it really is building up those skills so that when the real outage or real disaster hits, we actually are prepared to, to deal with it rather than just responding. Well, and, and that's another thing that we talk about too. Imagine uh, that you just have the ideal system and you never have any incidents. So you go months and months between an incident. If you're out of practice, then when it happens, do you know what to do? And do people know how to handle it in an environment that's really free of the chaos that we work on learning? Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing that, you know, to tie this back to how we started with with coronavirus that's interesting is not only the idea of having perfect systems and, and not having perfect systems, but the idea of being, uh, being open and transparent about them, right? Because for those who haven't been following the coronavirus drama, the virus first appeared in China and the doctor who first identified it raised a flag. He said, something is really wrong here. This isn't a small issue. This is actually very serious. And due to politics and, and things with China, uh, he was essentially, you know, muted. His message was was taken down. There was a lot of negative ramifications, and so information didn't spread as freely as it should have in order to quickly address the issue. And I think that as we think of incidents, oftentimes we have this this notion of, you know, in certain organizations of trying to pretend that things are just fine, uh, that there isn't an incident, that our systems are okay, when in fact, they, they may not be. And understanding that systems are, are usually in some sort of mode of failure, and being transparent about that helps us actually deal with them. Jason, that is such an excellent point. Right now, a lot of what's being talked about with Corona is trust in institution, trust that information that we're given is accurate, and that people aren't hiding anything. Interesting enough, when that doctor originally alerted people back in December, it, it made the news for a couple of days. It was a blip. Because this is an area of expertise of mine and something that I, I generally follow epidemics a lot, I actually bought my masks back in September, just a couple. I didn't stock up. But it was also about reading the early warning signs. And I think that, again, that translates into how we operate as businesses. Um, you came from from Datadog, right? You're very familiar with the the monitoring world. Um, and what can we learn from our systems? What can we learn from the past and and what we're seeing currently to prevent a major incident going forward? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so at Datadog, it's interesting because we we sort of break metrics or the signals up into into three sort of categories. One that we called uh, work metrics, and these were the higher level business goals, things that you, you actually want to throw alerts for, things that affect your customers or will affect your, if you're using uh, service level agreements or service level objectives, things that would violate those. And then we had a, a second group, and that second group were uh, the things that supported 
those higher level goals. And we call those resource metrics. So they're things like, are the services that my application is dependent on, are those available? And depending on what team you're on and what level within the organization you're at, these may drill all the way down to things like CPU, disk IO, things like that, that we're, we're from the ops world, we're traditionally used to, to monitoring. The third was actually uh, events. And so those are the things that you can use to, to correlate changes. But I think when you, when you talk about early signals, it's really those, what we call those resource metrics that you would use as early signals. And so you, you would have this idea of what are the things that I can monitor that would essentially be what we now call SLIs, service level indicators. What are those early things that I can monitor and take a look at that contribute to the overall objectives? And if I can monitor those, those indicators and get advanced warning on those to see if something is potentially wrong, then I could potentially head off issues uh, before I violate my objectives or my agreements. That said, I think with, with the virus, you know, our objectives are to keep people healthy, to keep mass populations unaffected. And so it is interesting, you know, what are these early indicators that doctors and epidemiologists and, and so forth are, are actually monitoring? Those are probably quite a bit different from, you know, what we're looking at in, in systems. But I suspect that they have the same sort of idea of early indicators feeding into to larger objectives. I'm curious, though, from your background and expertise on this, uh, what your thoughts are. Um, my thoughts are almost... Uh... They're, they're a little conflicted. I think, first of all, I never imagined uh, a conversation where uh, we would be talking about viruses and incident response and chaos engineering all at the same time. But it's very interesting how it all ties together. I think that it's important for people to both not panic, but be aware that we're at a tipping point. You know, if you are out there reading the news, make sure that you're reading multiple sources and reliable sources because uh, there's a lot of misinformation going on. And I think that it's important that we all take some personal accountability. And if we're not feeling well, making sure that, that we're staying at home. When we talk about incident response at, at PagerDuty, it was actually born out of uh, emergency management uh, practices for firefighting in um, California. And it really is remarkable how it all ties together. I'm curious what their alerting process looks like when a new case comes forward, right? How are they paging the right people, getting the right people on the call? I, I, I don't love to make the correlations, um, but at the same time, when dealing with an incident, when dealing with a medical or um, environmental emergency, the practices are, are somewhat similar, right? You need to mobilize the right people at the right time and make sure that they have the context for what's going on. And I think that, you know, there's oftentimes those uh, practices that you go through for emergency situations, practice drills. We're not in a practice situation anymore. However, I think that we can already learn from other countries' responses to this and tailor ours and make sure that we're using that data to keep more people safe. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you talk about not panicking and having these practices. One of the interesting things to me has been the way that people have responded. Uh, we, I was out at dinner last night chatting with some friends and they were talking about you know, hand washing and you're supposed to wash your hands for 20 seconds. 
And so uh, one way that you can do this is apparently as you're washing your hands, you can sing happy birthday, the happy birthday song, happy birthday to you. Sing that twice. And that's roughly 20 seconds. Or she'll be coming around the mountain. Uh, if you sing one verse of that, it's roughly about 20 seconds. And th- this idea of we've, we've modified our behaviors to do these things when in fact, to properly wash your hands, you should always be doing 20 seconds. There's, if you actually go on and watch YouTube, there are people that show you proper hand washing technique because we often miss the backsides of our hands or the, the outer edges or our fingertips and, and things like that. So it does boil back to like practicing correctly should be the same process as what you do in real life. It shouldn't just be a response to like, oh, now we're going to do a different process because there's a real virus or now we're going to do a different process because our critical systems are, are really down versus what we're doing when we practice doing chaos engineering and things like that. And all that leads you to having a more informed and, and a better understanding of, of your processes so that you don't panic when something actually goes out. Absolutely. I never would have thought about the fact that maybe we aren't always washing our hands the right way. And you're right, we do. We wash our hands the same way over and over and over again for maybe 10 seconds. Uh, then something happens and then then we start doing it right, which I think is an excellent point when when practicing for the real thing. Make sure you are following the right methodologies. So what would you say some of those methodologies are? Yeah, in terms of the systems we build, the methodologies really come down to when it comes to chaos engineering, right? Make that practice rigorous. Come up with a good hypothesis. Be rigorous about how you test that. And part of that is one reason that I love Gremlins. So, you know, at Datadog, we did a lot of game days and we actually did them very well. We had our, our own process, but we tried to make them scientific so that they're repeatable. And the idea there is that when I inject failure, I need to do it in the same ways to have the same effect because the idea is if I test a system and then I go back and I try to fix that or I try to build resiliency into my application, I need to go back and test that again. And that test needs to be the same. If I'm manually doing this, then it's not going to be as rigorous. And so all of the different contributing factors could change. And it means that I'm now testing for something different. So I want to test for that same thing repeatedly. And then like anything within engineering, you know, if you start doing something repeatedly and it has generally the same result, then you should automate it. And so put that in your CI pipeline that it should always test for this failure scenario or environment and get the same results that your monitoring gets, you know, thrown the right alerts or that you're able to see things or that your application just is able to deal with certain outages or certain failures in the environment. And then I think once you do that and you're, you're running these game days, the other is to have a rigorous process around how you handle incidents, which I'm sure you could talk to more, but, you know, things like having an incident commander and and the, the processes that you follow. I don't know if you want to talk more about that, though. Well, that's an entire episode all on its own. But I mean, again, it goes back to that practice, making sure that you're doing things the correct way all the time. And I think that when chaos engineering comes into play, you're making sure that all of your incident response practices are the right things. So PagerDuty's incident response it's successful because we've iterated it on it over the years. We didn't just 
do one thing and stick with it because it's the one thing that we started to do. But we looked at how is this working for us? What can be changed? What can be improved upon? Which is exactly what we're looking at with chaos engineering uh, at the beginning, right? What about our processes needs to be more resilient? But one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, we uh, recently did a chaos engineering tabletop uh, exercise workshop at PagerDuty Summit with, with Bruce Wong, actually. And I was facilitating one of the tables and it was just a, a bunch of people from different companies. And the resounding theme from quite a few people was we want to do chaos engineering, but our company won't let us. They're too scared. Do you want to talk about that? Do you want to debunk the myth that, that chaos engineering has to be a scary thing? Absolutely. So that's a great question, Julie. I think that the fear of doing chaos engineering and the, how scary it is often reflects back to what you were talking about with failure Fridays of like, why would you do this on Friday when things could blow up and now we have to stay late or we have to work on the weekend to resolve this? And it really is that idea of coming back to practicing. You don't practice with real games, right? You practice little components. So for example, if I were you know, a football player, I'd practice little components of throwing the ball, catching the ball, having good starts, hiking the ball, things like that. And then I'd take those components and build those up into larger practices where I might practice, uh, you know, plays or practice certain maneuvers or certain sets of, of plays. And then I build that up into scrimmaging, right? Practicing against my teammates. And then eventually I'd get to, to real games. And it's similar with, with failure Fridays and chaos engineering. You want to start small. So you want to start in your development environment and with little bits of your components. Start with those easy tests of, you know, does my application still work if I max out the CPU? Right. And that's just in development. So it's, it's a safe place. And you build that up until you get comfortable that my application does survive with this small test of spiking CPU. And then from there, you can move up into your, your staging environment. And again, you'll start small and you'll build up until you're comfortable. And then from there, you'll build, you push that into production and you'll run those tests there. It's not that different from pushing code. Pushing code directly to production is just as scary as starting chaos engineering directly in production, and you shouldn't do either. You should develop in a development environment and get comfortable and have tests and you know be okay with that code and then push it into your staging and then from there push it into your production. So when people say that it, it is scary, well, I think you're coming about it in the wrong way. It's obviously scary if you do bad practices and work directly in production from the get-go. But if you follow traditional practices of starting in development, just like you would with your code, it's not that scary. You're following a process that's been tried and true for many decades. That said, you could potentially end up in production because and break things because production never completely matches staging and usually never matches development. But that said, you've built up those skills through this process, both the incident response skills and the chaos engineering skills. You've built them up to be able to handle those incidents in production. And when you're doing it in production, you have people around to help. Uh, it's much better to do it in a game day with chaos engineering than to have it naturally happen because 
that's when you pager duty wakes you up at 3 a.m. is when you haven't practiced for these things uh, and you're not doing it in a controlled environment. So that's really the advantage of chaos engineering and why it shouldn't be scary is building up to these and having people around and you know declaring that it's it's a chaos engineering experiment versus having them happen organically. Thank you. I like that. I like the building up. Um, I think that that's an important piece is uh, to, to take those baby steps. What's the one thing you wish you would have known sooner when it comes to running software in production? That's, there are so many things that I wish I'd known sooner. But I think the, the biggest for me is that failure is okay. I think a lot of times in my early career, not understanding that failure was okay caused me to spend a lot of cycles that were maybe unnecessary trying to account for for failures or error scenarios that probably would have never happened while ignoring the the easy ones that they could have. Um, so ended up over-engineering a lot, not iterating as quickly as I could have simply because of thinking that failure was completely unacceptable. And that's a good point. Failure is acceptable. That's how we learn. Jason, thank you very much for your time today. It's been wonderful talking to you. I know we talked about quite a few things, including um, really what's going on in, in the world and how it's affecting all of us. And uh, I think it's, it's interesting how it relates to everything that we do uh, today. Do you have any parting words for us? I'd just like you to thank you for having me on the podcast. It's been fantastic. Also, I always enjoy talking to you, especially with with how much of a epidemics nerd you are. Uh, I always learn something new about uh, the state of our world and sometimes how fragile it is. But I, I think uh, you know overall how resilient we are as as people. Uh, so, yeah, happy to be on the show. Thanks again. Well, thank you. And this is Julie Gunderson wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com. And you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's at page it to the limit. Let us know what you think of this show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.